Chapter Four of the Unclassed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Unclassed by George Robert Gissing. Chapter Four Christmas in Two Homes. When Ida Starr was dismissed from school, it wanted but a few days to the vacations. The day which followed her mother's removal to the hospital was Christmas Eve. For two hours, on the afternoon of Christmas Day, Ida sat in silence by the bedside in the ward, holding her mother's hand. The patient was not allowed to speak, seemed, indeed, unable to do so. The child might not even kiss her. The sister and the nurse looked pityingly at Ida when they passed by, and when the visitor's time was at an end, and she had to rise and go, the sister put an orange into her hand and spoke a few hopeful words. Night was setting in as she walked homewards. It was cold and the sky threatened snow. She had only gone a few yards when there came by a little girl of her own age, walking with someone who looked like a nursemaid. They were passing, but all at once the child sprang to Ida's side with a cry of recognition. It was little Maud Enderby. "'Where have you been, Ida?' "'Where are you going? "'Oh, I'm so glad. "'I wanted so to see you. "'Miss Rutherford told us you'd left school, "'and you weren't coming back again. "'Aren't you really? "'And shan't I see you?' "'I don't know. "'I think not,' said Ida. "'In her premature trouble she seemed so much older than her friend. "'I told Miss Rutherford, you weren't to blame, went on Maud eagerly. I told her it was Harriet's own fault, and how shockingly she'd behaved to you. I expect you'll come back again after the holidays, don't you? Ida shook her head and said nothing. But I shall see you again, pleaded the little maid. "'You know we're always going to be friends, aren't we? "'Who shall I tell my dreams to if I lose you?' "'Dreams, in the literal sense of the word. "'Seldom a wink went by, "'but Maud had some weird vision of the night "'to recount to her friend, "'the meaning of which they would together try to puzzle out, "'for it was an article of faith with both, that there were meanings to be discovered, and deep ones. Ida promised that she would not allow herself to be lost to her friend, and they kissed and went their several ways. Throughout the day, the door of Mr. Smale's shop had been open, though the shutters were up, but at nightfall it was closed, and the family drew around the tea-table in the parlor, which smelt so of drugs. 
it was their only sitting-room for as much of the house as could be was let to another family besides mr smales and his daughter harriet there sat at the table a lad of about thirteen with a dark handsome face which had something of a foreign cast his eyes gleamed at all times with the light of a frank joyousness he laughed with the unrestraint of a perfectly happy nature his countenance was capable too of a thoughtfulness beyond his years a gravity which seemed to come of high thoughts or rich imagination he bore no trace of resemblance to either the chemist or his daughter yet was their relative mr smales had had a sister who at an early age became a public singer and so far prospered as to gain some little distinction in two or three opera seasons whilst thus engaged she made the acquaintance of an italian costi by name fell in love with him and subsequently followed him to italy her courage was rewarded for there she became the singer's wife they travelled for two years during which time a son was born to them the mother's health failed she was unable henceforth to travel with her husband and after living in rome for nearly four years she died there the boy was shortly brought back to england by his father and placed in the care of mr smales on the understanding that a sum of money should be paid yearly for his support and education from that day to the present nothing more had been heard of signor costi and all the care of his sister's child had fallen upon poor smales who was not too well provided with means to support his own small household however he had not failed in the duty and julian his name had been englished was still going to school at his uncle's expense it was by this time understood that on leaving school he should come into the shop and there qualify himself for the business of a chemist had it not been for julian the back parlour would have seen but little cheerfulness to-night mr smales himself was always depressed in mind in ailing in body life had proved too much for him the burden of the recurring daylight was beyond his strength there was plainly no lack of kindliness in his disposition and this never failed to come strongly into his countenance as often as he looked at harriet she was his only child her mother had died of consumption early in their married life and it was his perpetual dread lest he should discover in harriet a disposition to the same malady his fears had but too much stimulus to keep them alive harriet had passed through a sickly childhood and was growing up with feeble constitution body and mind were alike unhealthy of all the people who came in contact with her her father alone was blind to her distorted sense of right her baseless resentments her malicious pleasures her depraved intellect his affection she repaid with indifference at present 
the only person she appeared to really like was the servant sarah a girl of vicious character harriet had suffered more from ida's blow than had at first appeared likely the wound would not heal well and she had had several feverish nights for her convenience the couch had been drawn up between the fire and the table and reclining here she every now and then threw out a petulant word in reply to her father's or julian's well-meant cheerfulness but for the boy the gloomy silence would have seldom have been broken he however was full to-night of a favourite subject and kept up a steady flow of bright narrative at school he was much engaged just now with the history of rome and it was his greatest delight to tell the listeners at home the glorious stories which were his latest acquisitions all to-day he had been reading plutarch the enthusiasm with which he spoke of these old heroes and their deeds went beyond mere boyish admiration of valour and delight in bloodshed he seemed to be strongly sensible of the real features of greatness in these men's lives and invested his stories with a glow of po poetical colour which found little appreciation in either of his hearers and i was born in rome wasn't i uncle he exclaimed at last i am a roman romanus sum then he laughed with his wonted bright gleefulness it was half in jest but for all that there was a genuine warmth in his cheek and lustre in his fine eyes some day i will go to rome again he said and both of you shall go with me we shall see the forum and the capitol shan't you shout when you see the capitol uncle poor smales only smiled sadly and shook his head it was a long way from marylebone to rome greater still the distance between the boy's mind and that of his uncle sarah took harriet to bed early julian had got hold of his plutarch again and read snatches of it aloud every now and then his uncle paid no heed sunk in dull reverie when they had sat thus for more than an hour mr smales began to exhibit a wish to talk put the book away and draw up to the fire my boy he said with as near an approach to hardiness as he was capable of it's christmas time and christmas only comes once a year he rubbed his palms together and then began to twist the corners of his handkerchief well julian he went on leaning feebly toward the fire a year more school i suppose and then business what yes uncle the boy spoke cheerfully but but yet not in the same natural way as before i wish i could afford to make you something better my lad you ought to be something better by rights and i don't well know what you'll find to do in this little shop 
the business might be better yes might be better you won't have much practice in dispensing i'm afraid unless things improve it's mostly hair oil and the patent medicines it's a poor lookout for you julian there was a silence harriet isn't quite well yet is she smales went on half to himself no she looked poorly to-night julian began the other but paused rubbing his hands more nervously than other yes uncle i wonder what had become of her if i if i died now you're growing up and you're a clever lad you will soon be able to shift for yourself but what'll harriet do if only she had her health and i shall have nothing to leave either her or you julian nothing nothing she'll have to get her living somehow i must think of some easy business for her i must she might be a teacher but her head isn't strong enough i fear julian yes uncle you you are old enough to understand things my boy went on his uncle and with a quavering voice suppose after i am dead and gone harriet should want help she won't make many friends i fear and she'll have bad health suppose she was in want of any kind you'd stand by her julian wouldn't you you'd be a friend to her always indeed i would uncle exclaimed the boy stoutly you promise me that julian this christmas night you promise it yes i promise uncle you've always been good and kind to me and see if i'm not the same to harriet his voice trembled with generous emotion no i shan't see it my boy said smales shaking his head drearily but the promise will be a comfort to me at the end a comfort to me you're a good lad julian silence came upon them again in the same district in one of a row of semi-detached houses standing in gardens lived ida's little friend maud enderby with her aunt miss bygrave a lady of forty-two or forty-three the rooms were small and dark the furniture sparse old-fashioned and much worn there were no ornaments of any kind in the rooms with the exception of a few pictures representing the saddest incidents in the life of christ on entering the front door you were oppressed by the chill damp atmosphere and by a certain unnatural stillness the stairs were not carpeted but stained a dark color a footfall upon them however light echoed strangely as if from empty chambers above there was no sign of lack of repair perfect order and cleanliness wherever the eye penetrated yet the general effect 
was an unspeakable desolation maud enderby on reaching home after a meeting with ida entered the front parlour and sat down in silence near the window where faint daylight yet glimmered the room was without fire over the mantelpiece hung an engraving of the crucifixion on the opposite wall were the agony in the garden and an entombment all after old masters the centre table a few chairs and a small sideboard with the sole articles of furniture the table was spread with a white cloth upon it were a loaf of bread a pitcher containing milk two plates and two glasses maud sat in the cold room for a quarter of an hour it became quite dark then was heard a small soft footstep descending the stairs the door opened and a lady came in bearing a lighted lamp which she stood upon the laid table she was tall very slender and with a face which a painter might have used to personify the spiritual life its outlines were of severe perfection its expression a confirmed grief subdued by and made subordinate to the consciousness of an inward strength which could convert suffering into triumph her garment was black of the simplest possible design and looking at maud as the child rose from the chair it was scarcely affection that her eyes expressed rather a grave compassion maud took a seat at the table without speaking her aunt sat down over against her in perfect silence they partook of the milk and the bread miss bygrave then cleared the table with her own hands and took the things out of the room maud still kept her place the child's manner was not at all constrained she was evidently behaving in her wonted way her eyes wandered around the room with a rather dreamy gaze and as often as they fell upon her aunt's face became very serious though in no degree expressive of fear or even awe miss bygrave returned and seated herself near the little girl then remained thoughtful for some minutes the breath from their lips was plainly visible on the air maud almost shivered now and then but forced herself to suppress the impulse her aunt presently broke the silence speaking in a low voice which had nothing of tenderness but was most impressive in its earnest calm i wish to speak to you before you go upstairs maud to speak of things 
which you cannot understand fully as yet, but which you are old enough to begin to think about. Maud was surprised. It was the first time that her aunt had ever addressed her in this serious way. She was used to being all but ignored, though never in a manner which made her feel that she was treated unkindly. There was nothing like confidence between them. Only in care for her bodily wants did Miss Bygrave fill the place of the mother whose affection the child had never known. Maud crossed her hands on her lap and looked up with respectful attention upon her pale, sweet face. Do you wonder at all, Miss Bygrave went on, why we never spend Christmas like your friends do in their homes, with eating and drinking and all sorts of merriment? Uh, yes, aunt, I do. It was evidently the truth, and given with the simple directness which characterized the child. Do you know what Christmas Day means, Maud? It is the day on which Christ was born. And for what purpose did Christ come as a child on earth? Maud thought for a moment. She had never had any direct religious teaching. All she knew of these matters was gathered from her regular attendance at church. She replied in a phrase which had rested in her mind, though probably conveying little, if any, meaning to her. He came to make us free from sin, and so we should rejoice at his coming. But would it please him, do you think, to see us showing our joy by indulging in those very sins from which he came to free us? Maud looked with puzzled countenance. Is it a sin to like cake and sweet things, aunt? The gravity of the question brought a smile to Miss Bygrave's close, strong lips. Listen, Maud, she said, and I will tell you what I mean. For you to like such things is no sin, as long as you are still too young to have it explained to you why you should overcome that liking. As I said, you are now old enough to begin to think of more than a child's foolishness. To ask yourself, what is the meaning of the life which has been given to you, and what duties you must set before yourself as you grow up to be a woman. When once these duties have become clear to you, when you understand what the end of life is, and how you should seek to gain it, then many things become sinful which were not so before, and many duties must be performed which previously you were not ready for. Miss Bygrave spoke with effort, 
as if she found it difficult to express herself in sufficiently simple phraseology. Speaking, she did not look at the child, and, when the pause came, her eyes were still fixed absently on the picture above the mantelpiece. Keep in mind what I shall tell you, she proceeded with growing solemnity, and some day you will better understand its meaning than you can now. The sin which Christ came to free us from was fondness for the world, enjoyment of what we call pleasure, desire for happiness on earth. He himself came to set us the example of one to whom the world was nothing, who could put aside every joy and make his life a life of sorrows. Even that was not enough. When the time had come and he had finished his teachings of the disciples whom he chose, he willingly underwent the most cruel of all deaths to prove that his teaching had been the truth and to show us that we must face any most dreadful suffering rather than desert what we believe to be right. She pointed to the crucified figure and Maud followed the direction of her hand with an odd gaze. And this, said Miss Bygrave, is why I think it wrong to make Christmas a time of merriment. In the true Christian, every enjoyment which comes from the body is a sin. If you feel you like this or that, it is a sign that you must renounce it, give it up. If you feel fond of life, you must force yourself to hate it. For life is sin. Life is given to us that we may conquer ourselves. We are placed in the midst of sin that we may struggle against its temptations. There is temptation in the very breath you draw, since you feel a dread if it is checked. You must live so as to be ready at any moment to give up your life with gladness as a burden which has been appointed to you to bear for a time. There is temptation in the love you feel for those around you. It, it makes you cling to life. You are tempted to grieve if you lose them, whereas death is the greatest blessing in the gift of God. And just because it is so, we must not snatch at it before our time. It would be a sin to kill ourselves, since that would be to escape from the tasks set us. Many pleasures would seem to be innocent, but even these it is better to 
renounce, since for that purpose does every pleasure exist. I speak of the pleasures of the world. One joy there is, which we may and must pursue, the joy of sacrifice. The more the body suffers, the greater should be the delight of the soul, and the only moment of perfect happiness should be that when the world grows dark around us, and we feel the hand of death upon our hearts. She was silent, and both sat in the cold room without word or motion. End of chapter 4 Recording by Susan Smith-Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma